Well, good morning again. If you would, take your Bibles and turn to Colossians. We will continue this morning, working our way through chapter 3, unpackaging all that Paul has for us here. This is a wonderful text, a wonderful passage. I'm enjoying my time in it, and I trust that you are as well. You're going to have a lot more time in it. So, there's so much here. You know, it's, it's, it's wonderful how the Word of God works that way. Um, it truly is living. Not that it changes its meaning, but as we grow in God's grace and as the Holy Spirit works, works within our hearts, He brings us to a place of deeper and greater understanding. And I am so grateful for all those who have gone before who have laid a path in regards to helping us to better understand the content of God's Word. And I'm grateful for the great scholars of the past and theologians of the past that God in His good providence has given to the church and people that we can go to and rely upon to help us to have a better understanding of of comprehending the significance and meaning of God's Word, understanding, too, that everything in Scripture points to Christ. Um, the, the, the narratives in the Bible, the, the content of the Bible, the poems, the, uh, the, the apocalyptic language, the prophetic language, the epistles, the gospels, all of them there are for the purpose of pointing us to Jesus Christ. The narrative is not about us. Uh, the content of scripture is not about us. It's about Jesus Christ. And so when we look at a passage, we understand it to be Um, taken in that in that way and to be presented to us for that purpose and so I appreciate that about Paul because the Colossians is a Christological treatise it's it's a wonder if you will in regards to the work and person of Jesus Christ Um, its depth and and magnitude is just truly almost unsearchable in many ways and so we're going to be continuing this morning looking at verses six and seven Uh, and perhaps part of eight um, as we continue to move through these exhortations on the part of Paul with regard to living out our union with Christ. And before we go there today, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we do love you. We thank you for this day. We know this is the day that you have made, and um, even though it's somewhat cold and snowy, we're so grateful that we can be in the confines of this beautiful building that you have so graciously provided to us and, and have given us the ability to care for through your good providence and blessings. Thank you, Lord, for that. Um, we ask, Lord, that you would bless us with the presence of your Holy Spirit this morning, that we would have um, an illumination of our minds, that you would quicken our hearts to hear your word today, that we would be equipped to do the good work that you have set before us, not out of drudgery or a sense of 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 hard duty or hard work, but out of delightful resolve and love for our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, due to the wonder and glory of our salvation. Thank you, Lord, for the exhortations. May we be mindful of our call to live as people who are holy and set apart, um, the redeemed of God's saints, ones who have been saved for the particular purpose and wonderful joy of proclaiming Christ and communicating the wonders of salvation to those who are lost in this dark world. Give us a greater burden for the lost and help us to be reminded of the fact that people do indeed need the Lord. And equip us, we pray, in the, through the Holy Spirit to have a better understanding of your words so that we can give an account for the hope that is within us, effectively, precisely, with passion and precision. 
We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Colossians chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Paul writes as follows, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set or fix your mind. Now pay attention to that. The mind, of course, is important because it's where we begin to do things. It's where we begin to ruminate about things and we begin to comp- contemplate things and where the impulses come from and things of that nature. And so Paul understands that. And so he encourages us, he exhorts us here in verse 2 to fix our mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. Well, we've been taking the time to unpackage this particular segment of Colossians, we have been looking at um, understanding the reality of our union with Jesus Christ. We have talked about the idea that Paul is looking to an expression of the root, our root being in Christ, producing a particular identifiable type of fruit, a fruit that gives evidence of the genuineness of our redemption. The fact that those whom God saves, he then equips and provides the ability to live in a manner that is pleasing to him. We have a new heart, therefore we have a new desire. Our minds are no longer set on the earth, they're set on things above. We know that he is coming back and we look forward to being united with him. And so we then do something in response to the wonders of that truth and that is we begin to put to death those things in our lives that are indicative of a life counter to the new nature that we have. Paul, in verse 5, gives us a very specific list of conduct that should not be identifiable in a Christian's life. Doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. Doesn't mean that it's not a struggle. Doesn't mean that it can be a problem for a period of time. Clearly, Paul is writing to saints He identifies them as such in chapter 1, yet he is dealing with certain sins that are apparently present within this body of believers. These would also be present perhaps because of the misleading teaching of the false teacher. As we know from 2 Peter, those types of false teachers are given over to teaching people to live in a loose way, if you will. Their conduct often is like the world's and is embraced by the false teacher and is encouraged that way. We know there is a false teacher in this church. Chapter 2 dealt with that issue extensively. This person has come in, he's clever, he's polished, he is a silver-throated orator by all accounts, he has a very unique heretical position on a lot of issues. It's a mysticism, paganism, syncretistic type of approach to a lot of different things, a blending of legalism and ritualism and asceticism and all of those isms, if you will, 
and which have put the people back on their heels with regard to their trust and confidence in Jesus Christ. That's what false teachers do. They make it all about you. They direct you to look at it from the standpoint of yourself rather than, as what Scripture says, to look at it from the perspective of our hope and our rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so Paul here is dealing with that. And so we've taken into consideration um, the issues that Paul has given us. We've broken down the content of verse 5, and we began to look at verse 6 last week. And my emphasis last week was really upon the idea of us being no longer under the wrath of God, the simplicity, if you will, of the gospel, and the sincere conduct that flows out of it. And the type of life that, that demonstrates the wonders of the gospel and a sincere living that gives over to a life that is pleasing to the Lord. And again, I want to make certain that we're very clear about something. You cannot work your way into heaven. You are not making God love you any more than he loves you presently. We don't have a God who is is fickle and easily angered with regard to our behavior we can certainly displease him, but he's not Zeus. He's, he's not curling down um, uh, lightning bolts from heaven at us every time we do something that we think might be out of bounds. He is gracious, he is long-suffering, he is loving, and he's equipped us to live for him in a way that brings glory and honor to him. And this is what Paul's point is. In verse 6 and verse 7, Paul does something that's very important, and that is to speak to the issue of God's wrath. And let's talk about that issue for a moment. Let's consider, if you will, this issue of God's wrath. The word wrath occurs more often in the Bible than the word love does. So does this mean that God is just walking around angry all the time, that he is inherently angry and wrathful constantly? No. And I would submit to you that perhaps that there is a better way to understand God's wrath with regard to his holiness and his justice. A holy God, which we know that he is, Isaiah would proclaim him to be thrice holy in Isaiah chapter 6. Scripture repeatedly refers to them in the context of being holy, holy, holy. And so at that level, we understand that there is something uniquely different about God from us. He's just not a better version of you and me. He is God, and he is holy. And as a consequence of that, he has he, he has a perspective about things. Now, certainly in this context of his holiness, he considers sin and he looks at sin and he does not like sin. A thrice holy God cannot tolerate sin. That's why we need a savior, right? We cannot be in the presence of God outside of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, because of his holiness, which incorporates ideas of justice as well, he is going to be wrathful against us because of who we are in our sin. I think that's important for us, and perhaps an emphasis can be placed on that as opposed to the idea of of him being in a constant state of perpetual wrath. That he is just constantly engaged in wrath. That he's just pouring out wrath in a constant way. Against the wicked, of course, the plowing of the wicked is a provocation to God. Yet he allows it to rain on the wicked and the righteous alike. Of course, the reason he is angry with the plowing of the, of the wicked is because they're not giving recognition to the fact that he gave them the land to plow to begin with. 
And so I think we have to keep that in mind, and there, there could be, have, perhaps be a misunderstanding of, of, of this. Wrath is the effect of God's justice and holiness on disobedient rebels. And we have to keep that in mind as we consider eternity past and the future as it relates to what he's going to do. The redeemed of God are being spared the wrath of God. We'll see that in Scripture. But we still see God's wrath displayed against wickedness, against evil, against sin. And so wrath is the way disobedient people experience God's justice. Do you see this? So God's justice is ultimately displayed as you approach the bar of justice, if you will, in that legal context, and you stand before the judge of the universe, you're going to receive a punishment, and God is going to be angry and wrathful with regard to his execution of that punishment. The Bible speaks of this in the context of people being placed in hell for all of eternity. The Bible is abundantly clear about that. And so Paul here teases out for us here in verse 6 something that is very important. And that is that you and I are different from what we used to be. We used to be, in Ephesians chapter 2, the children of wrath. We used to be the sons of disobedience. The word son there is important because it speaks to the idea that the disobedience was inherent to our nature. We were, by nature, children of wrath, is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. And here in Colossians chapter 3, verse 6, capturing that same theme and that same idea, he says this, For it is because of these things. What things? Well, the things that he's just described in verse 5. This life of immorality. Now, I think for us as the redeemed of God, we must, we must take what our current culture is offering us, both in the context of all the, the, the new sexual orthodoxy that's being put out there for us, transgenderism, homosexuality, uh, all the isms as it relates to sexual conduct and the deviances that are taking place, we now understand that that type of behavior is a marker for those who are considered to be inherently disobedient by nature that they are not to be embraced, that they are not to be brought into the fellowship as just a side B Christian. Paul makes it abundantly clear that that behavior that he identifies in verse 5 is not to be part and parcel of the Christian life. Again, it does not mean that it does not happen, but it's not something that we use to identify ourselves by. We are the redeemed of God. And so Paul... Paul, pushing this point, will then begin to exhort the Colossian believers, as we see, to, to depart from that way of life. You can now walk in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. This is why he says what he does in verse 7. Going back to verse 6 for a moment, for it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. It is going to come. It's coming. In verse 7, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. And he goes on to verse 8, and he lists out another set of vices, if you will, but now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. So, comprehending that issue with regard to God's wrath is important. God's holiness stirs into activity against sin by executing his, his qualities of justice 
And he brings about a response based upon the reaction to the sin that is evident in these people's lives. God is not going to tolerate sin. He can't. If he did, he wouldn't be God. He couldn't be holy. And I hope that you understand that. And so Paul wants to make certain that these Colossian believers are not embracing what the false teacher is saying. We know from 2 Peter chapter 2 that false teachers encourage this kind of behavior. They, they, they revel in it. They like this type of debauched living. And apparently, because this is evident in some level at this point in this church, it would appear that this false teacher has encouraged people to engage in this behavior in some way because it's there. And it's, they've been given license to engage in it. So we see in verses 6 and 7, the result of sin, God's wrath, God's punishment. It's, not, it's common in the New Testament when these types of vice lists are given to us to point out that these sins bring down divine judgment on the practitioners. And, and this is why God will be just in judging the behavior of these people at the end of the age, at the great white throne judgment. You and I are no longer under that context. You and I are no longer going to be subject to that type of wrath. We are going to be spared that. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, according to Romans 8. You and I don't have to live our lives in trepidation and fear. It troubles me when I hear pastors talking to Christians about being at the great white throne judgment. What? Why? You can go by yourself. I'm not going with you. Why? Why are they doing that? Well, I'll tell you why. Because they're trying to scare people to behave. For one thing, people have this impending doom hanging over their head for their entire Christian life, robbing them of their joy and their peace. That's wrong. And so for here, for Paul, he's reminding, again, he's he's saying to them, listen, listen, Christian, you, you used to be those people. You used to be that way. You lived in that life. You engaged in that behavior because you were a son and a daughter of disobedience by nature, a son of Adam. But now you have been brought into union with Jesus Christ. You have been reconciled by God, by Christ with God. Go back to chapter 1. You're no longer alienated or hostile in mind. You are now embraced by the Father lovingly through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Embrace that new nature. Understand who you are. Live in that victory, if you will, of having been born again. This is what Paul's doing. You and I often get caught in the trap of living a life of fear rather than rejoicing over what we are being spared by God. Paul's motivation is interesting to me. He is reminding them of who they once were, reminding them of the fact that the people who practice these things are under God's infinite final judgment, but that we no longer live that way. Praise God. Praise God. And so Paul's emphasis here, of course, is on final judgment. This judgment is coming, the language, the the grammatical structure, the use of the present tense. It's going to come, basically, is what it could say. 
And so we can see here that judgment begins in God's present displeasure with the sinner and will consummate at the great white throne judgment, as we know from Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. And we should remember that God is, in essence, a holy God, and that justice and love are interdependent aspects of that holiness. We oftentimes want to emphasize the love of God over the justice of God. We like a God who loves, but we don't want a God that's just. We like a God who is embracing, but we don't want a God who is going to be a just God at the end of the day. We want a God like us, fickle, easily influenced, easily persuaded, and easily deceived. As a loving God, he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins and to bring salvation to his elect. As a just God, however, he must destroy evil, which is in the absolute antithesis of his holy character. Even Isaiah would say, I am a man of unclean lips. I, I'm a people, I'm of a people who are in who are by nature sinners. And he's purified and made equipped and made ready to be one who communicates the truth of God's word to a people who have turned their backs on God. So too, you and I have been made pure. We have been made new creation in Christ Jesus. And as a consequence of this, we now begin to hate the things that God hates. The idea that the Christian church today can be embracing of the very behavior condemned by Apostle Paul in verse 5 is mind-boggling to me. And shows how far, far the church has fallen into error. How much influence the false teachers have brought. Even Paul in Acts 20 would remind the elders of the false teachers that are going to come. He was concerned about these things. Because he knows that this error undermines the vitality of the rest that we have in Jesus Christ. As a just God, he must destroy evil. But we, people, sinful humanity, has so rationalized the seriousness of sin that people think a loving God can do nothing, nothing less than just forgive sinners and tolerate their sin and indeed embrace their sin. Indeed, there are pastors today who are using the language of the new sexual orthodoxy to define Jesus Christ rather than his word, rather than Colossians 3.5. This cannot be so. Without repentance, without faith in Jesus Christ, there can be no forgiveness of sin. And the vices that are identified in verse 5 must and will lead inevitably to divine wrath. That's what Paul's reminding them of. So he's saying to them, listen, such were some of you. You're no longer identified by your conduct and sinfulness. You're identified by your resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Therefore, live that way. And so what he says then, he reminds, his, he reminds them in verse 7. You used to walk this way. You used to be part of that. The word walk in the scripture is always used to indicate a way of life, a way of, of, of acting and conducting oneself. 
These things do lead to divine wrath. So we have to be reminded God is not mocked. Pay attention and live in a manner that reflects the reality of your conversion. It's interesting to me that as we look at Scripture, we see that, 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 that God deals with sin consistently. He loves his people. Even in the Old Testament, the word chesed is used to communicate that grace and mercy of God, which ultimately culminates in Jesus Christ as we see in the New Testament. Romans chapter 2, verse 8 states clearly that God's wrath and anger fall on those who reject the truth and turn to evil. And so this is what Paul's talking about. So he's obviously concerned that there may be some within the midst of this church in Colossae that are engaged in a consistent pattern of this behavior, that it has become habitual in their life, if you will that they have now become identified by that behavior. He's saying, remember, that type of behavior is a marker of a son of disobedience, and God is going to judge. It's going to happen. So don't forget that for those of you who want to engage in this pattern of behavior, for those of you who have perhaps embraced the false teacher and his teaching on these things, that licentious, loose way of living, and so he's, he's very concerned about this. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. Now, it's important for us to, to make certain that we're understanding some things here about God's wrath, about the way that we live, the conduct that we engage in, the behavior that we tolerate. Perhaps, here, for example, let's do it this way. I'll remove you from the equation. Let's say that you have a child who professes to be a believer who is engaged in this behavior. A family member, a friend. And they say to you on a consistent basis, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. And you keep looking at their conduct and their behavior, you're scratching your head and you're thinking, wait a minute, that behavior looks like your old behavior There's nothing different about it. What you ought to be doing is communicating to them, listen, if you believe and if you say to me that you have been born again, then your behavior ought to comport itself with the truths that are contained in God's word. If the reality of Colossians 3, 1, 4, 4 are yours, then you will be engaged, therefore, in verse 5, by putting to death the members of your body that are engaged in this behavior. Christians act like Christians. At the end of the day, that's measurable. Oh, pastor, judge not, lest ye be judged. Your favorite verse has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the fact that you could end up being judged by the same high standards that you're judging people at the end of the day. So be careful. Be careful what you do, because Christ goes on in the rest of that passage to do what? To judge, to do the very thing that you think you shouldn't be doing. We can measure. It's interesting to me that Paul is giving us clearly markers by which we can measure the genuineness of one's stated conversion. 
And so in 1 Thessalonians, he's reminding them, too, of this important fact about God's wrath. Now, for us, as the redeemed of God, we get to rest in the joy and comfort of knowing that because we are in Jesus Christ, this condemnation given over to the sons of disobedience is not ours. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says this, And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the what? Wrath to come. Paul there speaking again to the idea of this final judgment, this upcoming event where God in the execution of his justice based upon his holiness is going to demonstrate his wrath against sin. Don't trifle with a thrice holy God. We see similar language in Romans 5, 9. So turn there. We're going to have a lot of verses to look at here, so gear up. Now look at this. Okay, I just want to make sure that we're getting this right. I want you, now listen to me for a minute. I want you to revel in the wonder of being spared the wrath of God because of Jesus Christ. That, that's got to be a reality for you. A lot of us have, 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 have capitulated with a lot of, of, of progressive thinking and liberal theology that undermines the reality of this component of our human existence. There is going to be a day of reckoning. It's coming. And regardless of what your eschatology is or your perspective on the end times, one way or the other... It's coming. Okay? Friends, you as believers for whom Christ has died are going to be spared the wrath that is coming to the sons and daughters of disobedience. And it's going to be real and it's going to be genuine. And it's going to be everlasting. It ought to be a great comfort to you. The fact that in Jesus Christ... That wrath to come is no longer yours. You can rest in the fact that God indeed was pleased with what Jesus Christ did. When he said on the cross, it is finished, he had at that moment, at that time, consumed, if you will, all of God's wrath that would be rightly yours. And it was forever gone. That's mind-blowing. So, so look at this. So we have 1 Thessalonians 5. We have Colossians 3, 6 reminding us of the fact that this wrath, if you're going to engage in the behavior in verse 5, if you're going to reject the truths of verses 1 through 4 in Colossians 3, that your reality is that you are a son of disobedience who is under God's righteous, holy, just wrath. But Paul tells me this in Romans. And here's the great joy. Look at this. Romans chapter 5, verse, um, let's begin with verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the Super good people. Is that what your Bible says? The, the handy dandy translation, the make me feel better translation? 
For while we were still helpless, I couldn't do it on my own. I had no inclination. I was dead in my trespasses and sin. What do dead people do? They don't do anything. There are not degrees of death. If you're dead, you're dead. So helplessness speaks to the idea. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's you. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, the redeemed of God, the elect, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Something very specific is happening. His death means something. If you go back into Colossians chapter 1, Paul speaks to the idea of us being presented faultless, sinless in the context of his finished work before the Father. There is that issue of reconciliation. Verse 9, much more then. Now listen to this. Now, now you would think that verse 8 enough. You could put a period at the end of verse 8, close the chapter off, shut the Bible, and you'd be done. But no, what does he do? He does this. Verse 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. We might be saved. What? No, 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 no. We what? We shall be saved. I have charged clients a ton of money fighting over the word shall. That's what lawyers do. And I'm not kidding. That word means a lot. And so I like the word shall. I want to make certain that the person on the other side of that table understands that when we sign this contract, you're going to do it. It says you shall do it. He says it to me right here. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Jesus Christ. That's why, in the new, that's why in the Lord's table, we celebrate the new covenant in his blood that relieves me from this wrath. That's what's going on. So I get, I, I'm getting this in my head. This is what Paul is driving into these Colossian believers. Get away from the false teacher. Abandon your behavior that is going to be indicative of those who are the sons of disobedience. Embrace the reality of the truth of the freedom that you have in Jesus Christ. And know this, there is no wrath for you. Come on. You got to get your arms around this. He says, and it's interesting to me, verse 9, much more than, this is even more significant than the truth in verse 9. He's driving it home. He is saying, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Paul tells me in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, what happened to me? There has been a cutting away of that which would Invoke and demand God's wrath. That which would have engendered the wrath of God against me has been cut away, assumed by Jesus Christ. I have now been buried with him into his death, raised into his life, and I am now a new creation in Jesus Christ. John 3, 5, Christ and Nicodemus, you must be purified. 
And how does that happen? It happens in Jesus Christ. It happens by God's sovereign work and initiative, by taking a poor, vile, decrepit, dead sinner and picking him up and placing him in Jesus Christ to become a trophy of his grace. That's what Paul's talking about. That's the reality of what he's speaking to. Look what verse 10 says. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. I can lay down at night. I can put my head on the pillow. I can rest knowing that I am no longer under that condemnation. I belong to him. He belongs to me. Verse 11, and not only this, he just keeps piling it on. Why are Christians so down in the mouth? I don't get it. And not only this, go back, verse 9, much more than, and not only this, look at the language it's being used. And not only this, it's like Paul can't even believe it himself. But we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. The permanent reconciliation. The forever reconciliation. The reconciliation that doesn't change. You can't take yourself in and out of reconciliation like the Arminians teach. Oh, I'm saved today, but I may not be saved tomorrow. So you mean to tell me that the certificate of debt that was canceled on the cross by Jesus Christ for you has now been nailed back on the cross and you got to go through the whole thing again? you got to be kidding me. No. You're, they're the redeemed of God. Now, if you're genuinely saved and you're born again, you're going to give evidence of that. These evidences of grace, this desire to live for him and to love him and to rest in his finished work drives people forward. It, it gives them the ability to face up under unbelievable levels of suffering and difficulties and challenges Look at Paul's life. Look at Paul's. And so it's because of this. Go back to Colossians. I'm not done. Go back to Colossians now. Look what he does. So in verse 7, he tells me, that I once walked. So he's, he's drawing this contrast out. He wants to make certain that I am seeing the distinction between the redeemed of God and the unregenerate. He, he's reminding them. Again, friends, you used to walk in this when you were living in them. It was who you were by nature. It's what you did. It's how you lived. And so for Paul, he's communicating this transformation and the evidences of the transformation. God's love, juxtaposed against his wrath, has provided redemption via the atoning sacrifice of his son. But his wrath, based upon his holiness, as an expression of his justice remains necessary for those who reject God's offer of salvation and prefer rather to live in sin. That's why there's condemnation. You and I have been removed from that. 
a righteous God must exercise justice toward those who show contempt for his salvation and prefer a life of evil. That's what's going on. So if your preference, and we're all about our preferences, okay. Well, if your preferences is to be in verse 5, then I can only tell you that the reality of your life will result in verse 6. That's where you're going, straight to hell. That's it. That's what the Bible says. I, I can't put it any other way. Why, wouldn't I, why would I say it any other way than that? Am I being loving by going to somebody and embracing them and their identity? Oh, I'm just going to give you a big hug, and we're going to sing Kumbaya, and I'm going to embrace, and I'm going to call you a brother in Christ while you go out and hang out at this place and that place and identify yourself as something that the Bible says is absolutely sinful. But that's okay. That's your truth. It's my truth now, too. That's nonsense, people. That's error. That's heresy. And so, a righteous God must exercise justice, thereby expressing his wrath toward those who show contempt for his salvation and prefer a life, and let's call it what it is. It's evil. It's evil. It's insanely evil. And this is what the sons of disobedience do. So, so in, in, in verse 7, Paul goes back to the Colossians' former lives as pagans, reminding them that you used to walk in these ways, don't forget, during that life that you once lived. And when Paul uses the references to these things or these ways or... He's talking clearly in reference to the vices of verse 5. And Paul is implicitly castigating the Colossians for falling into sin when they at times return to their old pagan patterns. The Bible does not whisper about this type of sin. Contrary to what J.D. Greer says. It shouts it out. It is abundantly clear that these are not to be the means by which we identify ourselves as the redeemed of God. And so, as a consequence of this, Paul then says this. We are to rid ourselves. Verse 8. So, so again, in verse 7, don't forget the word. So we have this, we have this, this idea of this once and but now type of thing. There's a difference. You were once this, but now you're this. You see that in verse 7 and verse 8. Verse 7, and in them you also, what, once, once walked. That's in the past, right? We're all, does the language still mean anything that I don't know? To me, once means what it means always, and that's that you used to be that. Once. You did it once back then. Once walked. When you were living in them, that way of life. But now. What's the difference? But now what? We'll go back to Colossians chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. That gives you the but now. And it's all about what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. 
rescued you from the domain of darkness, Colossians 1.13, transferred you into the kingdom of light. You were once hostile and alienated in your mind and engaged in evil deeds. But God changed that through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. So we look at this and we recognize then that we then put these types of things aside and now he gives me another list of vices that may, in all likelihood, hit a little closer to home. Because these are relational in nature. The other sins identified in verse 5 are typically more individualistic, private type of things. They can be expressed publicly and openly. We know that. We live in that age. But these are the ones that kind of really get us all in the context of, of understanding how we relate to other people. So he talks about anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. And so we, we see then of, of, of this command to basically get rid of sin. As I noted, there is a once but now movement from verse 7 to verse 8 that, Paul is, that shows that Paul is now addressing the current situation. And what's interesting to me is when he says in verse 8, he says, but now you also put them all aside. There's this picture of, of some languages, some translations say rid yourselves or put away. We see a metaphor of stripping off and getting rid of filthy clothes. And, and this is an image that Paul likes to use, this idea of putting away, taking off, and putting on, as we will see next Sunday, Lord willing. I'm going to stop there because there's a whole lot more in these verses. So, again, friends, what are you resting in? Now, this, this is so incredibly important. Now, I want to, here. You may look at these passages and say to me, well, pastor, I don't do those things. And what, what you're telling me when you say that to me is that you're faithing in your faithfulness. You're looking to yourself and you're saying to yourself, I'm not that bad, pastor. I'm actually a pretty good guy, a pretty good gal. But here's the problem, the tendency is to put the faith in the conduct. You're saying to yourself, I'm going to trust in the fact that I don't do it. That's going to get me to heaven. That's self-righteousness. That's works-based theology. You come to this list. You come to this behavior. You examine the the wrath of God, and you say to yourself, I can do those things, I have done those things, but Jesus Christ never did for me, and I can rest in that fact. That's what happens. Your faith is always in Jesus Christ alone. The fact that you may not be engaged in that behavior presently is simply because God has saved you and you still rest in Jesus Christ. Your faith is always in Christ. That's it. 
So even when you consider these passages, you come away from them and you say, praise be to God, I have been spared his wrath. I have been placed in Jesus Christ. And I can lay my head down on this pillow no matter what I've done today. And if I die, I'll be with him. Do you believe that? Huh? Do you not? No, come on. Do you really believe that? Or are you sitting there thinking, oh, wait a minute, pastor. I'm going to get up there and it's going to be kind of like, a, hey, man, this is a good guy. I can't believe we got him. It's like picking teams for a kickball. No, I know that I am in Christ. Am I a sinner? Oh, absolutely, I'm a sinner. But I'm a saint, too. I'm a holy one, set apart by God, by Jesus Christ. Do you know him? Now, do you really know him? Or are you looking at the list and you're saying, because I didn't do those things, or I haven't done them yet, I'm going to be okay. No. That's not faith in Christ. That's faith in yourself. Trust, rest, put your faith in Christ. That's the only way you're saved. That's it. That's it. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that we are spared your wrath. We rejoice that there's no condemnation for those who are now in Christ Jesus. We rejoice that we are known by you and that you have united us to your beloved son, Jesus Christ, in whom there is no sin, no deviations, nothing but pure divine righteousness. Thank you, Lord, for the wonders, the miracle, the unbelievable story of our redemption. May we always be mindful of this, and because of that, out of a loving, joyful response to you, put these things away from our life. Forgive us for putting faith in us and our thinking that we are okay because we may not have done one of these things. That's, that's idolatry. That's self-worship. Forgive us for that. Help us to be better resters in your finished work. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.